Chapter 11 of Pioneer Work in the Alps of New Zealand by Arthur Paul Harper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gail Timmerman Vaughan. Chapter 11 The Franz Joseph Glacier. Second Visit. Winter Snow. Successful Ascent to Neve. Ice Formation. Moraine Formation. Old Moraines and Glaciers. Advance and Retreat. June, July, and August, being our winter months, it was useless to attempt any hill work. Therefore, after six weeks' office work in Hokitika, I returned to Christchurch for a few weeks' holiday. Unlimited golf and sundry expeditions of my lantern slides before the New Zealand Alpine Club and other institutions made the time pass quickly, and before I had well shaken down to civilized life, it was time to return. From our work on the Franz Josef Glacier during the previous summer, it was evident that early spring was the best season for attacking the icefall and upper ice. I therefore obtained permission to try and reach the Neve in September, and at the same time to make observations as to winter retreat or advance, and generally supplement the former report. On September 13, 1894, I arrived at the Forks, and after some difficulty obtained a man to accompany me to the glacier. The mere mention of going on to the glacier frightened most of the young fellows in the district. However, one of them joined me, in spite of warnings from his mates, prepared to face all sorts of unknown evils. Friday, September 14th. We pitched the batwing in the same place as last year at Camp 1, and had everything ready by 3 p.m. While looking about in the scrub-round camp in the evening, for a straight pole to use in camp, I found a small case for carrying soap, which I had lost last year. Aweka must have taken it away from camp before we left in February. Saturday, September 15th. Grand weather, very cold, even here in the mornings. Made a traverse of the terminal face, which showed general retreat, a new rock appearing by number one Harper's Rock. In the afternoon we fossicked a route over to the north side landing, a little further up than last year, near the first small icefall, ice very broken and troublesome went along the side to Rope Creek, and found the ice so far retreated that we could not get down without a rope, left a small load here, which we brought along to lighten the weight tomorrow. Hailstorm in the evening. Sunday, September 16th. Moved to Camp 2 in the afternoon with fly only. Raining all the morning and showers during the afternoon. Cold quarters up here, with only one blanket at this time of the year. Rigged up fly in the usual way, with two end windbreaks. Our little female weka of last year still here, and seems very glad to see us. Very tame. Monday, 17th. Tried all the morning to find a route onto the glacier. My mate did not appreciate the pleasures of being let down into a crevasse to cut steps, nor of going along steep sides of the hummocks in small footholds. After three attempts we found a route two hundred yards further up than last season. Not by any means a good one, but safe enough at this time of the year went up to Camp 3 to see if we could camp there, also marked our line with rotted twigs through the extraordinarily crevassed and broken ice below Cape Defiance, found deep snow on the bank at Camp 3, should only save an hour and a half by camping there, and should have to break a day if we moved up tomorrow, so returned to Camp 2, found that the rotted twigs saved about one half of the time taken in going up. The ice here is simply a maze of long ridges, very narrow, between deep crevasses, and in such an uneven fashion that I could not see a route for certain more than one hundred yards ahead. 
consequently we were often forced to retreat our steps having been blocked fixed three measurement cairns between camp and point e the rocky cape on eastern bank in the afternoon bathed baked bread made a stew changed my plates and lost my temper in the evening n b i presume the fire smoked when i was baking but cannot remember tuesday september eighteenth glorious moonlight last night up at two forty five a m but did not leave camp till four a m my mate did not see much catch in getting up so early in the winter and wanted to know what's the odds of an hour or two glacier and ranges looked simply magnificent by moonlight could see everything quite clearly even on the low country we were able to distinguish some features and beyond it the sea travelled quickly to just below cape defiance when the moon dipped down behind mount moltke leaving us in deep shadow right in the middle of the rough ice blundered along slowly the deep crevasses looking very ghostly as we crawled along the narrow ridges in the dark now and then would see a rotted twig faintly as dawn came up we got out of the crevassed ice and were opposite the Unzerfritz waterfall had it not been for the rotted twigs we should have been quite an hour longer in the rough going Unser Fritz was silent, frozen from top to bottom in one icicle, 1,209 feet in length. The absolute silence of so large a fall was very imposing. We put on the rope halfway up the ice fall, and were opposite Almer Glacier at 8 a.m. and had breakfast. Snow covered everything, but all the seracs were standing just the same, the snow bridges being some 10 or 15 feet below the general level of the glacier. For a few chains above the inflow of the Almer, I thought every moment that we should be stopped, the hummocks and seracs formed a perfect labyrinth, and the crevasses between them were not bridged very strongly. I have never in all my experience seen such a hopeless confusion of broken, crevassed, and generally rough ice. The snow became painfully soft after 10 a.m., but we pounded along, taking turns in the lead and as we were now high up in the neve there was little or no chance of going through into crevasses the snow was so deep at noon we were well up into the southeastern corner of the head basin and there i was able to do all that had to be done for the map the plan which we made the previous summer is practically correct and only one or two minor corrections to be made we went on a little further to within about a mile and a half perhaps less of graham's saddle to the tasman i wanted to go on and at least ascend graham's saddle but my companion was a firm believer in the eight hours day and would not consent to more so i had to suit myself to him more or less i told him that now he had done all that was necessary and anything else we did would be voluntary work for our own amusement and asked him if he was willing to go over to the tasman he was decided in his objections as he had had enough of this bloomin work and didn't give a d for the scenery he was paid for a day's work only, and had done that. I therefore gave up the idea, wondering at such a lack of enthusiasm. We started back at 1 p.m., travelled as fast as the very soft snow would allow to the top of the icefall, and having our tracks to follow, took very little time in passing the Serac ice. I feared that the snow bridges would be weaker, so lengthened the rope to thirty feet, and always kept a hummock of ice between us. This was necessary, for the leader on two occasions crossed a crevasse safely and mounted a hummock but on going down into the next hollow to be ready in case the second man broke the bridge he would go bodily through the snow and the bridge which he had safely crossed would let the second man through thus we were both in crevasses with the rope taut over the intervening hummock 
to scramble out was no trouble and beyond confirming my mate in his opinion that he had got into most dangerous company no harm was done we reached camp about five p m very burnt with the new snow the day having been cloudless throughout i very much doubt if the snow would last for another two weeks of sufficient strength to allow a route to be found in rough seracs at the top of the icefall the neve of the glacier is roughly a circular basin of three miles in diameter and is surrounded by some fine peaks between nine thousand and ten thousand feet out of the southern side the peaks of the dividing range rise in pinnacles and knobs of rock out of the sea of ice affording interesting rock climbs the first ascents of the peaks from de la beche nine thousand eight hundred and thirty five feet to conway nine thousand six hundred and eleven feet will probably be done from this glacier as their slopes toward the tasman are clothed with hanging glaciers which send down avalanches night and day during the summer on the southeastern side the range dividing the franz joseph from the watershed of the calorie branches from the minaret ten thousand twenty two feet and has three nice peaks in st mildred's drummond's and stirling rock the two latter are very easy climbs of snow the former a rock climb entirely the peaks of the bismarck range are on the whole disappointing from this side as they are merely small peaks of rock standing five hundred to one thousand feet out of a snowfield which slopes up to them in a series of broken ice falls in the summer the neve is almost all broken and crevassed the lower portion as it approaches the ice fall is i feel sure impassable after christmas it is quite bad enough in the early spring to make a sense of the peaks surrounding the neve a party must cross from the tasman via graham's saddle or from the fox glacier they can try to reach the neve from the terminal face if they wish to and i hope they will enjoy the experience wednesday september nineteenth note see appendix note seven end of note i fixed some measurement cairns along the side below camp two and we returned to camp one in the afternoon thursday september twentieth my horse had gone away down the river so i tracked and caught him below nisbet's hut returned to the camp in the afternoon and packed the whole of it to the hospital where i found arthur woodham alone stayed at the hut friday september twenty first i rode down to forks and found instructions from hokitika to go at once to gillespie's and with douglas explore the karangarua river this visit together with our work in the previous summer was productive of some interesting facts concerning the movement and general conditions of the franz joseph glacier in the first place the ice of the lower portion of the glacier appeared to be very soft and rotten in comparison to that of other glaciers a natural consequence of its low altitude the ice crystals were very large and easily detached and separated from one another it was very difficult in some places to form a step as a blow of the axe would scatter the loose crystals in every direction and sometimes when a step had been cut which to all appearance was as strong as necessary the floor would give way by crumbling under one's weight in the winter however during the last visit i found it much easier to get about because the ice was firmer and there was far less likelihood of rapid changes the constant alteration in the forms and shapes of the crevasses and seracs was in the summer most puzzling and sometimes an absence of a week would be sufficient for the ice to alter to such an extent as to render a new route necessary this activity is no doubt due as much to low altitude as to the speed with which the glacier descends over its rough bed it is not noticeable all over the lower portions of the trunk after an absence of a day or two we have found new crevasses open even on the dry ice and as already stated 
we constantly heard reports and felt a slight shock pass like a tremble over the surface while sitting in camp too we could hear the glacier cracking and groaning on a still night in fact one of the first things i noticed on my second visit was the absolute stillness of the nights compared with our summer experience i have already given some idea of the very broken surface of the glacier and need only add that i have never seen one with so little good travelling on it having had a considerable experience on glaciers i can generally find a route through rough ice without much loss of time and certainly never expected to be reduced to leaving a line of marks behind for use on the return journey as we did here it was not really necessary but it saved a lot of time and was very little trouble the broken surface will account for the absence of large deposits of surface moraine which might be expected here owing to the broken nature of the hillsides and spurs in the upper part of the valley below point e and cape defiance there is no broken rock at all save the slip which has recently come down and is the cause of the single patch of surface debris now fast approaching the terminal face the glacier seems to descend in two and sometimes three distinct layers the upper one is pure white ice and the lower ones generally dirty the stones which fall into the crevasses are ground up like grain between two millstones and wherever it finds an opening between two layers the silt resulting from the grinding oozes out in the form of mud i have found a hollow under such an outlet full of mud to a depth of two feet or more owing to the nearness of the surrounding trees there is a large amount of timber in the ice and lying at the terminal face in the small moraines once or twice while cutting steps near the junction of two layers my axe struck a piece of wood and stuck fast in it the timber on the glacier and at the terminal face has a smooth worn look about it as if it had been well sandpapered it is chiefly rata a very hard wood and must have undergone a great deal of rubbing and grinding in some places the upper section of the ice could be seen standing away from the lower half a mile from the terminal face i saw a space of three inches or more between the two layers extending back into the ice for some distance and everywhere on the glacier if one happened to be cutting a step near the junction a large piece of ice would break away leaving a smooth mud-covered surface at the top of the lower layer the comparative motion of the ice in a glacier at different depths is little known and could i think be measured at places on the franz joseph with little difficulty i fully intended to do it on my second visit but had no time it is here perfectly evident that the surface ice moves far quicker than the lower portion for the upper layer of white ice can be seen at the terminal face pushing its way over the lower layer and periodically breaking off in large pieces this possibility is due to the rocky obstacles at the terminal face and underneath the glacier obstructing the flow of the lower portion while it does not interfere with the upper the layers are horizontal in some places and in others incline slightly against the flow of the ice one very noticeable result of the large quantity of moraine debris falling into the crevasses and being ground up between the separate layers of ice is that the old terminal moraines are composed of a layer of rolled stones with angular blocks on the top of them in some places and in others are almost entirely made up of the former this is of course because other slips have occurred in the past and covering the glacier have travelled down with the ice a large proportion of the stones having dropped into crevasses come out at the terminal face in a rounded form while the balance has come down on the surface of the glacier and been dropped over in an angular form onto the top of the other thus forming the two sections in the terminal moraines 
In some of the sea bluffs, the layers of rolled stones under angular blocks are easily to be seen, where the sea has cut into them and exposed a section of their formation. I have heard many theories put forward to account for this stratified appearance, though it is common in all old moraines. Douglas, in his report on the France Joseph, note, New Zealand Lands and Survey Report, 1893-94, to 94, end of note, written after our visit, mentions the process which is evidently going on at present in the glacier, and assumes rightly that a similar process went on in ancient times on a larger scale, and would account for the formations in the bluffs, which are, of course, old moraines. He is inclined to put forward a theory based on that assumption that the old moraines now forming the sea bluffs are not lateral, but terminal moraines. From what he has told me of his own observations, and from like observations, in a much smaller degree of my own, I agree with him that they are not lateral moraines, but I cannot go as far as he does and say that they are therefore terminal. There is, I imagine, no reason why the evidence of stratification should be confined to terminal moraines. May it not also exist in lateral moraines, when the ice is pushing its way over level country, and not between hillsides? For it would be depositing rolled stones from its lower portion, and dropping them from its upper portion, in the form of angular blocks along its sides, as well as at its terminal face. If this is a sound conclusion, then the inland moraine hills, which contain the two forms of stones, may be either lateral or terminal moraines. If the reasoning is not sound, then all, or nearly all, the old moranic deposits must be terminal moraines, and that I do not think can be admitted. Some ideas concerning the ancient glaciers and their deposits were put forward in the last chapter, and if they are correct, there would be a field of ice extending over almost the whole of the low country, fed by the numerous glaciers from the ranges. Such an ice field, before it broke up, would not have either lateral or terminal moraines on the flat country, for the debris would drop into the sea on one side, or form a lateral terrace at the foot of the hills on the other. On the period of retreat beginning, it would gradually divide itself into separate streams, corresponding with the glaciers supplying it, and would leave behind it a confused mass of moranic accumulations, which could hardly be classed as terminal or lateral moraines, until it had almost retired into the hills. These would be stratified, having layers of glacier drift and angular blocks throughout. Other glaciers, like the Tasman, Balfour, etc., which are covered with great masses of angular rocks, are not sufficiently broken or crevassed to swallow up a great amount of moraine. Thus, the double process does not now go on to such a noticeable extent on these glaciers as on the Franz Joseph. It is only during the next few years that it can be seen on the latter, for when the present surface moraine caused by the slip has dropped over the terminal face, there will be no more to come down on the surface unless another landslip covers the ice with debris. The ancient Waiho glacier may, or may not, have been of first-class importance. Douglas thinks that it was not, because he cannot find any of the higher old ice lines, which he has found in other parts. In the upper valleys of the Karangarua, as will be seen later, I noted several instances of these old ice lines, which appeared in the form of distinct terraces in the rocky hillsides, abraded by ancient glaciers. Douglas's remarks on the subject, I quote, quote, In valleys containing large glaciers, I have always found four tiers of terraces, or old ice lines. These lines keep a wonderfully regular distance from each other, and their inclination is very uniform, from, say, 4,000 feet to 600 feet, or 700 feet, 
where the river valley breaks out of the hills. The longer the valley, the more gentle the slope. The best places to see these lines are up the Host, near the 18-mile bluff, and better still, the wonderful terraces of Mount Cariah, up the Arawata River, where the old lines can be seen quite distinctly for 4,000 feet up and running for miles down the valley. In the smaller valleys, two or three terraces are visible, and in still smaller ones there are none. From this I would conclude that the Franz Joseph, although the largest glacier at present, was, during the great ice period, of second or maybe even third-rate importance. It must have been far eclipsed by Cook's and the Karangarua. End quote. Note. New Zealand Lands and Survey Report, 1893-94, to page 73. End of note. It is true that, in the Franz Joseph branch of the Waiho, there are not four ice lines visible, like there are in the two last-named rivers, but I do not think it necessarily proves that this was of second-rate importance. The Cooks, Karangarua, and Haast River, to my knowledge, and the Arawata River, from Douglas's accounts, flow through harder and more solid country, and therefore would show these old ice lines in a more distinct and lasting form. The Waiho is shattered country, and the lines have probably worn away by the action of the climate and weather generally. The enormous morainic accumulations around Lake Mapurika, and even north of that, point to a glacier of considerable importance. About three miles below the junction of the two branches, or five miles below the terminal face, there is an old terminal moraine almost semicircular, through which the river has cut a channel. This is perhaps a hundred feet high but we had no time to examine it. Comparatively speaking, this is a recent deposit, but to which of the ice lines at present visible it belongs, I would not pretend to say. At no very remote period, the Waiho River flowed north into Lake Maporica, and it is quite possible that this old moraine divided the river northwards until it was cut through by the water, which again resumed its old course to the sea. While speaking of moraines, it is worth calling attention to the very ridiculous attempts this glacier has made to form lateral moraines. Below point E, the rocky cape on the eastern bank, there is a line of boulders, about 200 feet above the ice, which have been left balanced in the most insecure manner on the bare rock slope. Just below camp 2, another small lateral line of stones can be seen in a precarious position. The only real piece of lateral moraine to be found is above Cape Defiance in the bend by Harper's Creek. The ice has flowed down the valley and meets this obstruction, causing it to eddy into the bend and force its way up in great waves against the cape. The likeness of a glacier to a river is here most evident, for the ice has done exactly the same as a river would do in a similar case. Having flowed against the cape, which projects twenty chains across the line of flow, it has banked up behind it, and turned round the rocky point in high pinnacles corresponding to the waves in a river. And whereas a river would, in a similar case, deposit large masses of driftwood on a bank, the glacier has thrown up a high lateral moraine of stones, which have come down in the ice from above the icefall. It has also caused the debris to come to the surface, and the ice in the bend is covered with stones. The absence of all other lateral moraines is due to the solid rock walls which line the glacier on both sides below Cape Defiance, and which are too steep to allow any stones to rest on them, with the two exceptions mentioned by Camp 2. Also, the broken nature of the glacier has caused all the debris to fall into crevasses, and therefore has left very few, if any, stones for it to deposit on the sides. 
When Douglas and I were in the valley during our first visit, we concluded, from various signs at the terminal face and along the sides, that a winter advance of considerable importance took place annually, followed by a large summer retreat. We had ample evidence of the latter, and my visit in September was made in hopes of finding a decided winter advance. We based our conclusions on the fact that in November 1893, when we arrived at Camp 1, there was a beautiful cone of ice, 110 feet in height, between the Strauchon and Muller rocks. This was covered apparently with riverbed shingle, and seemed to be due to a recent advance during the winter. It touched the latter rock along its base to a height of 25 feet. Other evidence was found in the fresh-dressed surfaces, just beyond the edge of the ice, which were of a lighter color than the rock above, and also there were signs of recent disturbances in small terminal moraines. During our stay in the neighborhood, the rapid shrinking, due to the low altitude of the ice, was most marked. The level of the top of the ice at the terminal face fell 70 feet between November 1st and March 1st, by breaking and melting, and the retreat during the same period was considerable. The most noticeable was at the ice cone. This was, at the beginning of November, quite perfect in shape, and in the position already stated. At the end of February, it had lost all shape, and collapsed into a small heap of dirty, broken ice, some thirty feet high, besides retreating twenty-two yards in the front, and about ten yards from the rock against which it originally rested. A new rock, which we named the Outlet Rock, was uncovered during February near the outflow of the glacier, to the extent of ten yards. All along the eastern bank a general shrinkage was visible when we left, and as far as we could see on the western side as well. I was not, however, prepared to say that the ice was retreating on the whole, because we fully anticipated that it would recover its lost ground again in the winter, when the melting would not be so great. For behind the sentinel, an ice cone was thrown up considerably in advance of the rest of the glacier, to a height of forty feet, in five weeks, at the end of the summer. This lifted with it riverbed stones, but did not last long, for when we left it had begun to decrease in size again. We made two marks, by means of which a future visitor might test the retreat, and I was able to use them again in my second visit, when I also made several more cairns for future use. Instead of the large winter advance which we had anticipated, I found a general and considerable retreat all over the glacier, with the single exception of a slight advance between the barren and Strauchon rocks. The ice behind the Sentinel had, in February 1894, been 120 leagues distant from the rock and in September of the same year had retired to a distance of 225 links, or a retreat of 1.05 chains. Between Harper and Park Rocks, a new rock appeared, which, however, may be part of the former. It was buried in the ice and raked by pieces falling from above. Where the ice cone had stood, there was a further retreat of about three chains, and at the outflow the outlet rock was exposed for one chain, or fifty links more, than in February. On reaching the eastern bank on the route to Camp 2, the general shrinkage was most noticeable. Just below the point at which we left the ice was a creek we named Arch Creek. It descended into a deep gorge, with a rock wall of 200 feet on the northern bank, and perhaps 100 feet on the southern. In the mouth of this there was a large isolated rock, the Eye Tooth, estimated 120 feet in height. The ice which flowed past the end of the gorge was pressing against the outer side of the rock, and in November 1893 was almost on a level with the top. 
On our second visit it proved to have retreated on the south bank of the creek for forty feet, and continuing along the glacier up the valley, there was a general shrinkage of ten or fifteen feet, while below camp two large holes appeared in the ice, showing the rock and indicating a still further retreat in the future. On crossing over to camp three at Cape Defiance, we found that though the ice had pushed its way a little further into the mouth of the creek, yet it was not banked up so high as formerly at the cape itself. When pitching Camp 3 the previous summer, it will perhaps be remembered, we built a flat platform of large stones in the bottom of the V-shaped valley formed by the moraine and hillside. This was still there, but the ice having retired and caused a subsidence of the lateral moraine, the platform had fallen over, or capsized, without breaking, towards the ice, and instead of being level was now lying at an angle of twenty degrees. Opposite Cape Defiance, above point E, the ice had banked up higher at another rocky point, but the gain there did not exceed the loss at the Cape. This may perhaps be merely a temporary upheaval, and in the course of a few months the pendulum may swing again, and the ice rise at the Cape and fall on the other side. It may only be due to the oscillation or lurching of the glacier in its downward path. The temporary advance behind the sentinel, observed in February, followed by retreat, and the retreat by the barren rock, followed by advance in the winter, may also be due to the same cause. Though all this had taken place in one winter, it is possible that the glacier is only passing through a temporary period of retreat, and that a great part of it is due to a mild season and heavy floods, causing large pieces to break off frequently. If the ice recedes at the same rate every year, the glacier will, in a comparatively short time, become of second-rate importance. I anticipate from the manner in which the Fox Glacier is holding its own, that though no future advance will recover the ground lost by present retreat, yet it will to some extent repair the damage, or at least remain stationary. But it is evident that this glacier is slowly but surely losing ground. There are many interesting problems to solve in this valley but they would require considerable attention during prolonged and frequent visits. It is little use for a man to go there in the way I have been. He must have leisure and be able to afford good instruments and plenty of time. Here he would have a glacier at an exceptionally low altitude, obviously flowing at great speed over rocky obstacles, giving good opportunities of solving some of the most interesting questions of glacier motion, such as the comparative rate of the surface and lower ice its effects on rocks, and the variation in position of the great waves or undulations on the glacier. The speed at which this vast body of ice flows would give more pronounced and satisfactory results than could be obtained on one of the slow-moving glaciers of other districts. There are also many questions as to the position and extent of the ancient glaciers to be determined, or at least, the solution is to be looked for in the old moraine hills on the flats, and in the old ice lines in the valleys. The fact of there being four different ice lines or terraces shows, I presume, that the old glaciers had four separate periods of rest, and possibly advance, during their general retreat. How long these various periods were, and the distances between them, have to be discovered, and the Franz Joseph or Fox Glacier may offer evidence on these points to anyone who is competent to collect and apply it. The terraces of bare ice-worn rock without vegetation followed by another with vegetation of a certain age, and yet another with trees of greater age, may go far to help in the solution. I shall always regret that I have not the means at my command to enable me to make a collection of data on the subject 
of the great ancient glaciers the answer to these problems is not to be found only in the low country but in remote valleys to which as yet no one but douglas and i have been and the most interesting one of all namely the valley which gives the key to the old glacier which formed the cascade moraine was explored by douglas and since then only visited by prospectors End of chapter 11